Morning, everybody. I trust that uh, you all feel comfortable. And don't worry about the Springbok rugby team and all these things, guys. Um, don't feel offended to see Chris standing here this morning. I trust that you would just really be blessed this morning and that the Word of God, as it is shared with you this morning, will cut deep into our hearts and that we would leave this place knowing God has been with us. I want to say thank you to Matthew and the elders for the opportunity of being able to share the Word of God with you this morning. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful this morning for being able to meet together in your precious name. We are grateful that we know that you are here with us. We know, Lord, that you want to speak to us. We know that you want to encourage us. And we thank you for all that you've been doing for us as a fellowship. We thank you for the wonderful growth that we've seen over the last year. We thank you for each and every one here who's precious to you. And we pray this morning as your word is shared that you would be glorified and that each one will leave you and say, surely, truly, we have met with God this morning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to speak to you about distinctiveness in mission. As you know, as a church, we have been very uh, con been concentrating on the Great Commission and on growth and, and what we believe God is saying to, uh, to us as a church. And there's something that's very interesting in, in being distinctive. And I believe as a church we've been called to be distinctive. Many years ago, there was a missionary who was sitting on a train. He had retired, and he was sitting on a coach and ready to go to his hometown. And on that very same coach was a, a senator with his whole entourage. And when he had arrived at the station, the senator was there, and everybody was there, and the crowds were there to meet him, and he made his normal political speech. And... This little missionary got off, old man, worn out, burnt out, given his whole life to God. And he said to God, Father, I served you all these years. Not once have I had people even come and meet me at the station. And then in his heart, it was as if God implanted the words, you're not home yet, my son. You're not home yet. You see, dear friends, what's so interesting is that we so often are caught up with the incidentals, like the missionary was caught up with the incidental. He would have liked to have at least had some recognition of being there, you know, and that. And we caught up with the incidentals so often. For example, um, many times in personal discipleship, um, we are caught up with the behavior of somebody instead, and we ignore, uh, ignore the heart issues. What prompted and gave rise to the wrong behavior of somebody? And so this morning, I want us to steer away from incidentals. I want us to not steer up to the crowds and to everything that sort of distracts us. I want this morning for us to concentrate through the scripture this morning and get a clearer understanding of why we are to be better disciples. This chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 12 is a very difficult chapter. As a matter of fact, most people ignore chapters like this. And so you must say Chris is mad to read this this morning, but I trust that God would use this very difficult chapter this morning to speak home to you. Turn with me to chapter 12, and I'm going to read only a few verses, and then we'll go through the rest of it. 
These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land, destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, burn their Asherah poles in the fire, cut down the idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Very interesting chapter. Just to give you a bit of background, the Israelites had been in, in the wilderness for 40 years. They at the brink of entering the promised land. And Moses, with his, basically with his last, his last word be, uh, to message to the people, Moses didn't enter the promised land, as you know, with his last message to the people were these words of God. As they were entering into the promised land, God had something very important to say to them. God wanted them to know that they are a distinctive people. And he has a distinctive mission for each and every one of them. One of the recurring problems in the life of Israel was that of idolatry. When reading through the Old Testament, we are constantly confronted with the issue of idolatry and how Israel fell prey to it. Now, there are a number of reasons why. The first and very obvious reason is that idol worship was very common among many nations. And this seemed to have attracted the Israels, uh, Israelites to this practice. Secondly, idolatry was far more convenient and easier to practice than what God had in mind for his people. Thirdly, idolatry is a self-made, a, tailor, uh, a tailored religion. Well, we can create our own gods. We can see him. We can feel him. We can touch him. We can move him around, we can manipulate him, and we can ha control him in such a way uh, as to say, well, this is my God. So that is what idolatry in its essence is. And so when the guys come to their shrines and they're lighting up their shrines in the morning, basically they have a, a God who is created by them, and that's how they want to worship him. And if they want to feed him, they feed him. And if they don't want to feed him, so what? Or whatever. So this is the God they can manipulate. And that's exactly why we find in the Old Testament, the Israelites were attracted to that. Remember when, the, when they were brought out of Egypt, first of all, what was the first idol that they started making? The golden calf. Because the other nations had done that, so they wanted a God that they can dance around and do what they wanted to and everything like that. And the women were willing to take off with it, all their jewelry and give the gold and everything. And so they had the same practices. And God was saying to Israel as they were standing at the brink of entering into the promised land, you are a distinctive people. I have a distinctive mission and a purpose for you. The downside of idol worship is that no crafted, crafted idol can ever begin to capture the essence of God. No crafted idol can do that. But secondly, and I want you to hear me out on this one, because some, uh, sometimes people don't hear, I think they were too late anyhow. Why? Why does Chris say that? Because God had already imaged himself in Eden with the first man and the first woman. 
He created them in His own image. By doing so, God is saying, look at my image in the people, and now they are to relate to one another. And as you see my image in these people, you will have insight into the God that I am. The primary purpose for the human race was to image God, but it went horribly wrong in, uh, in Eden, where we have the fall and, uh, and see how this image of God was distorted. And when we look at this uh, passage this morning, I want you just to go to chapter 4, verse 20 of Deuteronomy, and, uh, so that we can understand a bit more of this background of why, why this text of imaging God and being a distinctive people is so important. In um, uh, chapter 4, verse 20, we read, But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. It's interesting. He brought us out of, he brought these people out of the iron smelting furnace. In other words, in Egypt, where in this furnace, where the idols were crafted, God had these people there and God brought them out of that. He, he wanted them to know that his image is in them. He's imaged them. His image is seen in them and not in these uh, uh, molten, uh, cra uh, crafted idols. And God brought them out of Egypt after all those years to be a people imaging Him wherever they go. And dear folk, it never has changed. It never has changed. And you will see why now uh, as we get there. So this is the important principle that I want you to understand that will revolutionize anybody sitting here this morning if we believe it and accept it. The principle is God made himself visible in the life of his people and he invites the world in a glorious act of grace to make judgment on the basis of our life and of our character. God invites the world to look at us today. His image, we are bearer, image bearers of God. Isn't that wonderful? We need to get excited about that because this tells us our identity. We're living in a world today where people have lost sense of their identity. Everybody's an identity crisis. Have you noticed that? Everybody's an identity crisis. So we've lost sense of our identity somewhere in this world. And in the corporate world, it's even worse. We're under pressure. And so everybody is changing. So you get all these, these know-how books, you know, of how to read, you know, so that you can be more wealthier, that you can have a better personality, that you can be more assertive, that you can be doing all these different things. And so you find yourself reading these things. Why? Because somewhere down the line, you've lost your true identity. The world says to you, you are rubbish. God says to you, you are special. But we believe the world. The psalmist says to us, that we are beautifully and wonderfully made in our mother's womb. God sees you and I as special. That is why we are His image bearers. That is why, my dear friends, He has a mission, and the church is distinctive, has a distinctive mission. This whole passage in Deuteronomy chapter 12 speaks of distinctiveness. And there's two areas of distinctiveness that I want to share with you from here this morning and then go to the New Testament. The first aspect is distinctiveness in worship. And then secondly, 
distinctiveness in life. You know, what you worship and who you worship is the key to determining who you are. And God came and spoke through Moses to these people. And it's interesting, God says to them, I do not want you to worship them in the, me in their way. The Canaanites, my friends, worshipped who they wanted to, how they wanted to, where they wanted to, and were, did all the most appalling things in their worship. Now God comes and says, listen, I want you to worship me in the signed places only. Have you noticed that? He, in this passage, he doesn't say, I want you to worship me anywhere, everywhere. God assigns a place of worship for his people. And he says to them, that's where I want you to worship me. And then God doesn't say to them, all right, now you can worship me and then do what you want. God tells them how he wants them to worship. Very, very descriptive, you might say. Very godlike, you know. This is now really dictating to us. And we as modern Christians and modern people don't want a God to dictate to us. But God was actually preparing them for going into this promised land so that they could be a distinctive people, image bearers of God, so that they could see who God really is. Let me tell you something. God never just had one nation in mind. God has a global vision. Hear what I'm saying. This morning we are privileged to be here. There are people from all different parts of the world here. And okay, we, God has a global vision in mind for everybody. He's distinctive in his mission. God loves the world. That is why he gave his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves the world. So what happens is we try and come and, and compartmentalize these things and put them in little groups like that. But let me tell you something. God loves you. He loves the world. And God's intention for you is to be distinctive in your life and in your worship. To be distinctive. Now that doesn't say now that all of a sudden we have to have drums and we have to have this or that, you know. Because people immediately think about the things on the side of worship. But worship is the heart attitude, the love that you have, the key that you have. The, listen, my friends, your distinctiveness and my distinctiveness in God starts at the altar, at the altar of worship. If you recognize God for who He is, you and I have no other, uh, uh, what's the name, other uh, opportunity as to say, God, we are sinners and we realize that and we come before a holy God and we receive your forgiveness. By grace. And so God was very distinctive, very pragmatic in the way he had prescribed to these people what he wanted. So listen, Israel had to do it in a very, very different way. So once again, what you worship is the key to how you live your life. The Lord made it very clear that you are my people. I've rescued you. I've kept you all these years. I'm the one who's giving you this new promised land. By my grace, I'm in covenant with you. I am your God, and my purposes for you are endless. That's how special you and I are to God this morning. Now, let's look at this distinctiveness in life. In chapter 12, verse 31, in chapter 12, verse 31, I just want to read that to you. He says here, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, 
They do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. Other nations were burning their children to please their gods. This shows how indulgent and cruel the worship of idols really was. Now, those of you who come from South Africa and Africa and that know that many times there are, there are people that will go and throw certain uh, children into the rivers for the crocodiles and feed them to the crocodiles as a way of honoring their gods, you know, and that I'm sure you've heard of all these types of testimonies. Uh, and me, uh, throughout the world, you will find different people who do not serve uh, the God we serve and love going to their idols and sacrificing. And the Old Testament, and in the time of the old, uh, Israel, that was not uncommon. So we find the Canaanites had all these detestable things that they were doing, stuff that you don't even want to mention from a pulpit. But he comes, God comes and says to them, you and your sons and daughters, the very ones that the Canaanites were killing in their families and burning on the altar, he says, you will celebrate. This is how distinctive things are. We are going to have a celebration together at the altar uh, because Israel was about life, was about blessing, was about joy, was about fulfillment. That's what God, uh, God's image in His people was about. Life was precious. There was fulfillment. There was joy. There was blessing. Families got together and they would talk together and they would enjoy fellowship together. That's the image of God. Now, my dear friends, in the, in, in the, in the, in the New Testament, we know the, the answers to that, which we'll get to now now. But when we look at the Old Testament and we look at what happened here and all that God had promised these people, it didn't work out. They failed. Just like the first Adam and Eve failed. So we find once again, Israel at the brink of the promised land going in. Once they were in, the good times were rolling there and then all of a sudden they aligned themselves once again with their old practices with the old things. And then we find there that families fell apart. We find a lot in the Old Testament as we read, a lot of uh, fighting took place, in-house fighting, and people were upset with one another. The whole family uh, imploded. And instead of really growing, we saw a lot of division just because these people did not adhere to God's word. What God had promised them they would have had if they lived by it. So they failed as they aligned themselves to, um, to the foreign gods and to what people were doing. Life became cheap. We see the division, the famine. We see Israelites experiencing heartbreak because they were not willing to apply God's distinctiveness. But then, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. That's the positive part of this message this morning. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And what does Colossians tell us? That He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus came to show us who God the Father is. And in Him we have life. And in Him we have it eternally, my dear friends. And in Him we are free. We are free from the past. We are free from all those things because in Jesus is true life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. Hallelujah.
That is what it's about. My dear friends, your identity and my identity, forget about what all the self-help books are telling you. They're just making money out of you. Stop spending your time and your credit card on internet and, and buying this stuff. Those guys in the quick rich program, those guys are just getting rich out of you. Come this morning and see that God has imaged himself in Christ. And because you belong to Christ this morning, you are his image bearer. You are distinctive. You are special. You belong to, to, to royalty this morning. You are special. Oh, the world needs to know that. We are living in a broken world. We are living in people who are trying to climb the corporate ladder and get, get up to the top and think that the, if they have money and they have power, they have everything, my dear friends. They're missing one thing. They are sinners needing to be saved by God's grace because Jesus has done it all. He came and in Him our worship has meaning today. Isn't that so? In Him, our life has meaning. In Him, our families have meaning. In Him, our marriages have fulfillment. In Him, our children know and are happy and content because of Christ. And we have this image of God in us. My dear friends, this is the good news. With, the coming, with, the, with His coming, we see who God is and what life is like and what living under God's rule is like. As we read through the Gospels, we are reminded that the hungry were fed, the sick were healed, the elements were brought under control, the uh, marginalized were, were, were included, the vulnerable were protected, the demons were subjected. So we know what, what God was like when we look at Jesus. So now we know what life in the promised land was supposed to be like. Now we know what the church is and should look like. Listen, we are not propagating worship services. We are not building preaching centers. We are not building performance platforms. This is not our goal. We are to be a community of God's people living together in mission by the great commission commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ for His glory through the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing less, nothing more than that. This is the distinctiveness of our mission in the church today. This is a glorious call. We are to litter the world with communities living a Christ-centered life with disciple, uh, that deci uh, disciples uh, uh, that, that can see uh, what it is, where they are the light of God in a dark world and lives are changed. This is a high calling. We are called to be a church visible. We are called to be a church dynamic we are called to be a church interrelated. We are called to be a church, my dear friends, uh, um, uh, uh, integrated. We are also to know that we are not a segregated church, that we are a, reju a, re a rejuvenated church, that we are congregated church, and that we are an elevated community. Shoo, those heavy words. I had to write them about seven times before I could read them. Isn't that so? That is what the church is. I don't want to mention them again. Come ask me afterwards. I'll give you all the names, okay? We are to live in this community of grace. We are to live well in this community of grace. We are to image God and the life of the Trinity. This is a life that others 
will want and desire. This is the life that images this phenomenal God that we see and who shares his life with us. So how are we going to do this, you may ask? Well, the key to accomplishing this distinctiveness, my friends, in mission is to realize that it's not about me. It's not about me. We're living in this me society. I go to church because my needs are met. I go to the prayer meeting because my, my needs are met. When I'm sick, my needs are met. And everything goes around me. My dear friends, a true church community who is distinctive in the gospel and their calling is somebody that says, no, I'm imaging God in this world through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to live a life of uncommon commitment to my fellow brothers and sisters. A life of forgiveness time after time. We need to live a life of forgiveness. God has done everything for us. My preferences are not what is important. Nothing should be too much. It is not me time. I hear everybody talk about me time. It's not me time. That's another lie. Let me tell you now, it's another lie. Because that's what the modern world wants. It's God's time. So I want to ask you this. If somebody in need phones you at 12 o'clock at night, you're going to say it's me time now? Or you're going to say to him now? I'm asking you. Because Christians, my dear friends, don't have me time. They have Christ time. Because every opportunity that we look for and search for is Christ's opportunity. And that's exactly what we find with the Lord Jesus. He spent his time and his life around people. He would receive them late at night. He would receive them at different times. But Jesus was available. I just want to ask you, I'll give you another. I've got two more illustrations and I'm finishing, Matthew. One illustration about, you know, first-time first home buyers. It's quite an exciting time for them to buy their first home. So now they go to, to uh, the seller and they look at the home and they say, oh, we want this house. And so as they're about to sign the contract and they've got their bank loan and everything, the seller comes to them and says to them, listen, um, you can have this house, but the main bedroom is mine with an ensuite bathroom, that belongs to me, and whenever I come to the house, that's mine. Do you think they will buy that house? But that's what we do with God. God, you can have my life, but this is mine. That is mine. This is my me time. This is that time. So we compartmentalize our lives. But my dear friends, Jesus gave him very self. He gave everything so that you and I can have God's distinctiveness in the image of God in our lives is not me time. It's not compartmentalized. It is God is everything or nothing. Do you accept that? Do you live it? It's the hardest thing to live. Because when you get the first phone call from the church saying, you know that brother and sister needs a plate of food. Oh, <laughs> I wonder now what I'm going to do. And all the excuses fly. God is not satisfied with a half-committed life. He's committed himself in fullness, completeness. He gave himself. And then, for, for, uh, my dear friends, we must understand that it is Christ in me, but also to know that our affections must be that of Christ. Our giving of our resources must be that of Christ. Our homes must reflect Christ. The church is the community 
that interprets the gospel. We demonstrate the gospel through a distinctive life by relying on the finished work of Christ. But I know we'll fail. We all fail. So in this chapter 12, verse 16 and 23, we read a lot about the blood. And now we go back to the New Testament and understand what it's all about. You see, our distinctiveness, and even with our failures as human beings, is seen, my dear friends, in the finished work of Christ. I shared this illustration with, uh, with, the, with a home group some months ago, and I felt I need to share it again. There's, uh, this, there's a little boy that made his own little boat. Very well-known illustration of it. And he spent hours making his boat and days. And he painted it red, and he made the sails himself and everything. And then he went down to the lake to test this boat one day. And as he put it into the lake, it was, it was uh, floating beautifully. And he was very excited about it. But then a strong wind came up, and he didn't have a rope on it to pull it back. And the wind took this little boat far into the lake, and he couldn't get it. Heartbroken and destroyed inside, thinking I've spent so many hours making this boat, and now I've lost it. He walked home after school one day and looked into the second-hand shop and saw there was his boat in the window for sale. So he went to the owner and said, that's my boat. The owner says, I bought this boat. If you want it, you've got to pay X amount for it. And so we know the story probably from there on that this little boy worked hard and eventually he got the money and he bought this boat back. And he clenched this boat in his arms and he said to this boat, I made you and now I've bought you. You are doubly mine. God made you. Jesus bought you. You are doubly His. His image, my friends, is reflected in us and through us. We live the image of Christ. This community must know that people must know and see and desire. This is a Christ community. May you this morning understand your distinctiveness in worship, your distinctiveness in your life, and may Christ, who is building His church and says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, teach you and I to live this distinctive Christ-like life, which is a high calling because God laid, he, uh, 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 gave His lo loves this world and laid down His life for everyone. God bless you. Thank you, man.